So one of the questions that we had for Max Alvarez um, on a previous episode that we didn't get to, um, but nonetheless think it's a really value uh, valuable and really important question, is the question of Striketober and and where sport fits into all of that. Where where does sport fit into this this massive labor movement that we're seeing literally play out kind of all around us in October of 2021. So I'm I'm gonna ask Nathan first your your view on where sport fits into the broader theme of Striketober. Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I, and I'm a bit frustrated because on the one hand, um, you know, we we talk about this a lot. Athletic workers are really some of the most representationally significant workers in the world. Um, we're talking about unionized people who very much have a class position, um, strongly anchored in the labor movement, and yet simultaneously have these massive, spectacular platforms that are really like almost diametrically opposed to the conventional experience of the worker. Um, so, in that sense, the arena of athletic labor is an arena is a potential form of spectacle for labor politics. Uh, and indeed it does at times dramatize labor politics. And yet here we are in this moment where, uh, as Max, you know, used the language of this sort of the, the mass resignation that is occurring, um, workers leaving their punitive jobs because they're not willing to take it anymore. Um, strike Tober, meaning, you know, the, this, this, and there's a debate over whether it's a wave or not. So I'm, I'm sort of tentatively using that language, but certainly a flurry of strikes at John Deere, Kellogg's, and well beyond that. Um, workers making like really profound demands, pushing back against some of the most um, insidious practices in U.S. labor, practices like multi-tiered contracts for workers. You know, it's just something that even my own department exists. Um, and, and because of the relative weakness of the U.S. labor movement, um, corporations have been able to impose those kinds of destructive contracts because workers really didn't feel like they had any leverage. And suddenly we're seeing this moment with the resignation, this so-called crisis in the labor market, a crisis basically that just boils down to uh, capital not being willing to pay labor more. Um, and so then they, they, they plead false crisis when in fact there's a very simple solution. There's plenty of work out there. You just got to pay people to do it. Um, but nonetheless, right, as a consequence of that, we are seeing this flurry of strikes. And so, you know, it makes me wonder, where are the athletes, right? Where are these people who have the ability to throw their solidarity behind these movements and generate a massive amount, I would say, of like prestige for them? And I don't see it happening. And it, it's, it's bothering me. I mean, I, I want to start with that. Like, I, I really think that we need to see more of that. But at the same time, I, you know, I also want to point to the fact that we are seeing forms of movement in the athletic world. Um, we're seeing just a couple that I've been thinking specifically about, and I'm hoping that we're going to have episodes that address these in, in greater depth coming up. Um, we have the NLRB memo, right, which is in the context of college sport, really pushing us to reframe what campus athletic workers are, to, to actually treat them as workers. We literally have the regulatory agency of the private sector saying, they're workers. You want to call them student athletes, but guess what? They're workers, right? Which is a profound change. We also see in the context of, of baseball, minor league baseball, um, one of the, you know, really most 
despicable sites of exploitation in, in the, the political economies of, of really high revenue sport. Uh, the fact that although there are major you know, salaries, great working conditions, for the most part, in the major leagues of men's baseball in the United States, we see the exact opposite in the minor leagues where people are living in really uh, appalling conditions. They're working in appalling conditions. They have no leverage whatsoever. They are not unionized. The union at the major league level does not really serve their interests. But thanks to the work of organizations like the Minor League Baseball Advocates, we have actually seen a profound change where now teams are, are going to be required to offer housing for their players. That's a complex question. I think there's nuances to it, and I'm not going to get into that now. But I mean, that's a change. And it's happening during Striketober. So we're seeing the tentacles of the labor, of labor struggle, right, certainly grasp on to sport, but maybe not in all the ways I'd like to see it. Yeah. And I mean, I would say um, one, I mean, you know, one reason maybe why we're not seeing it is, I mean, we have the men's NBA who they're all bogged down by discussions of whether they, whether, you know, people should take the vaccine or not. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there's like profound sort of distraction by some, um, and, and, and I, and we talked about this before in prior episodes, but I think, you know, one of the biggest things is that we don't see solidarity from uh, professionals, um, athletes, to like college athletic workers, for example, there's sort of, there seems to be sort of very little public discussion between the two groups. And, um, I don't necessarily expect college athletic workers to have the time or the energy to necessarily kind of, you know, spend a ton of energy throwing their weight behind, you know, professional athletic, uh, labor, uh, fights. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should, but you know, I, I guess I just feel like they're sort of already downtrodden and beaten up enough to kind of throw something else at them. Isn't quite fair. Whereas I feel like the men's NBA, right. They, you know, have some of the best contracts of anyone in the world and they deserve it and they should have it. This is not a complaint of what they do have, right? But they are mired in these discussions about whether, you know, the decision to get the vaccine is individual or whether it should be a more collective, we're going to take care of our team and take care of society, right? So they just seem profoundly distracted. And the women's NBA, I mean, they've long been the leaders when it comes to labor action, you know, action against systemic racism and all these things. Um, I don't necessarily expect them to fight every single fight. So I think this is why I'm kind of kicking it more to the men's NBA than the women's. Um, but I guess that's just an area that for me, like I would like to see more labor activism for sure in sports. And I guess I just continue to be disappointed from professional athletes and their unwillingness to kind of help or throw any kind of public solidarity and support for um, college athletic workers. And Derek, Derek, before you jump back in, let me just say a couple of things. One, you know, cause that's a great point, Johanna. And let, let's give credit again, yet again, as always, to the WNBA players because of their activism around um, the abortion laws in Texas right now, uh, because that is a mm -hmm. front that they sure. have been yeah. taking on um, very vocally. And so, like, you know, that, that's a situation where, like, there, there's 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 clearly only so much you can do and so much you can kind of concentrate your energies on, right? So that that's, um, right. you know, but but... This is just furthering your point that there's an obligation for these men's athletes, right? And other in, mm -hmm. in sports like the NBA to be picking up that burden. And and it also you also raise, I think, a, a question that's worth delving into a little bit. It's like, how do we understand this question of vaccination and vaccine mandates as a labor question broadly and in the context of sport? You know, and we have a couple of interesting things happening at the same time here. We have the Kyrie Irving situation, which has been incredibly spectacularized. Um, 
in ways I think have been like rightly critiqued from all sorts of different angles. You know, some have focused on the fact that like, why has this racialized individual become the flashpoint for like this like general discussion in our society of vaccine mm -hmm. mandates when we see like police unions and, and police en masse, police mm -hmm. in Seattle making an entire spectacle of themselves essentially resigning, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it, it's it's disgusting. Like, police are not getting vaccinated, and they're supposedly here to serve and protect people. I mean, they're also know, labor. Right, exactly. But we know this is, I mean, we know this is a, the serve and protect is a lie, but there could be no better evidence of the fact that there's this utter refusal to do the simple thing that everyone can do right now to protect one another, a service we can perform yeah. to protect one another, and they're utterly refusing to do it, right? Um, but yet, who is the symbol? This is what I'm trying to come back to. Who is the symbol? Kyrie Irving is a symbol. Mm -hmm. That does seem to be problematic, right? So I think that we, on one hand, mm -hmm. want to entertain the fact that, like, who is being held up as an exemplar, that matters. But on the other hand, like, why? Why is someone like Kyrie Irving or why is anyone viewing vaccine mandates as a sort of major front in labor struggle. Um, and I think it's helpful to look at the case of Washington State coach Nick Rolovich, who, mm -hmm. you know, for, for those who don't, let me just tell this story very briefly for people who are yeah, not aware, course. because this is truly one of the most satisfying things that I've ever encountered in a news cycle. Nick Rolovich, who had a three-year, $9 million contract remaining, okay, decided that he did not want to um, comply with Washington State's vaccine mandate, the highest paid state employee in Washington. State wasn't thrilled about that. They pushed him to comply with the mandate. Ultimately, he was fired. He was fired with cause because he did not satisfy the, ma the mandate. Now, why does the with cause matter? Because like so many college football coaches, including, I mean, there's a sidebar, Jimbo Fisher, who has a $95 million buyout, which is to say that if Texas A&M University wants to fire Jimbo Fisher because he didn't win enough games, which is the predominant reason why college football coaches are ever fired, that is to say that is a without cause reason to fire someone, he gets paid $95 million not to do his job anymore, subsidized, of course, by the labor of his unpaid workers. Nick Rulovich also has a buyout. His buyout is approximately $4 million. So if Nick Rulovich decided he wasn't going to work for the rest of the year, he was just going to kind of mail it in, show up to meetings, lose every game, the man would walk away. He'd probably get fired and walk away with $4 million. He decided not to do that. He decided instead that his preference was to not comply with the vaccine mandate, thus be fired with cause. But for Nick Rolovich, that's okay. He had a trump card to play. His trump card was, of course, because we're in the United States of America, litigation, which is to say he was going to sue Washington. I don't know if it's a state or the university specifically, because they did not grant him with a religious exemption to not take the vaccine. Nick Rolovich's religion is Catholicism. Catholicism happens to be a religion governed by an infallible leader known as the Pope who has publicly declared that all Catholics should follow their religious duty and become vaccinated. So uh, Nick Rolovich doesn't really have a leg to stand on. It's just, to me, <laughs> it's just an incredible, I keep using the word spectacle, but really an incredible spectacle of um, 
I don't know, hubris perhaps is the word to use. Mm-hmm. Certainly a testament to the, I think like, I use the word infallible for the Pope, but like there's a way in which football coaches view themselves as infallible because they are treated mm-hmm. as infallible. They are yep. empowered to <laughs> do whatever they want essentially and to exercise authority over other people with impunity. Um, and this is a classic case of someone like running into um for the first time, basically, a form of accountability. And I think what we have to understand is that's not a labor issue because Nick Rolovich is a boss. And when the boss doesn't get vaccinated, what he is doing is creating unsafe working conditions for his employees who have very little power. To me, Nick Rolovich should be our case study in the question of vaccine mandates, not Kyrie Irving. Yeah, I I mean, like... It's hard to disagree with that, and it actually highlights how how ingrained one coach's ability to um, to enact status and ideological coercion actually that they can that they think that they're outside of areas of accountability, and because of that, they're able to have such strong controls and limits on the the labor force in which they oversee. Right. Like they they have that sort of infallible self-perception that allows them to, to basically like control the lives of, of labor, including in this case, a direct uh, assault on player health, on worker health. And I, I agree completely that like this should be the case study. And I think like in the field of like in sports, it, it's it's been shocking to me. One of the the underlying sort of areas of surprise for me during this entire um, vaccine kind of rollout in sport has been like our, the the cultural and political willingness to allow sport to be um, an area of, of exceptionality when it comes to these things. Uh, I, I've made no, no secret of the fact that I'm from Canada and in Canada, we have very strong vaccine mandates um, and we're seeing more of them every day um, where Universities are are mandating vaccines. The federal government of Canada, the entire body of federal government, has mandated vaccines, and yet we're going out of our way, or or our professional sports organizations, or leagues, I should say, are being given a variety of forms of exceptions where that that's even possible, where they don't have to be vaccinated, and yet they can still come in or when it comes to vaccine passports and quarantine rules that professional athletes are able to bypass those rules. I've, I've been shocked that we are treating sport as this sort of exceptional space. And I think, again, all of these things highlight how important labor um, and labor rights are for athletes because it, it's often who is looking out for athletic workers. We have this sort of cultural sort of idea that these people are lucky to be doing what they're doing. And it's a privilege to be doing X, Y, Z, all of these like different discourses. And that actually creates an environment or can contribute to the creation of an environment where these athletes and their labor isn't being respected and they're not being put in safe working conditions because we want sport to happen so badly. Um, And I think it's really highlighting like how 
were able to put athletic workers in such unsafe conditions. That's right. Yeah. It, go ahead. Yeah, yeah Derek, no, I, I just want to jump in because it's like, you're so right about this. These exemptions benefit capital. They don't benefit yeah. the workers. Yeah. That's yeah. the point, right? Like these leagues, whether it's the NHL, Major League Baseball, NBA, whoever is seeking exemption, right? Because And one of the reasons the exemptions come in is because there are teams in Canada, right? So that raises some yeah. of these complications because yeah. there's a border to cross and we have very strict regulations, especially as you pointed out on the Canadian side of the border, right? So then we're entertaining this question. Well, can, can the teams cross the borders? Are you, are you going to subject the athletes to the same conditions as other people, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, these regulations exist to protect people. That is why the regulations are there. They're to stop the disease from spreading um, and harming people, whether they are like, you know, the workers in this case or like other people in the society. So if you create exemptions like this, the exemptions exist to keep that product, that commodity spectacle that is sport, which is fueling the bottom lines of the leagues themselves, the teams, the, the cable networks, right? The ESPNs of the world. Those are the beneficiaries ultimately of these decisions. And a lot of that weight is borne by the athletes who suddenly are not protected by the same rules that are protecting other people in the society. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fundamental difference between labor and the bosses and management. And we, we need to understand that. Like the difference between Kyrie Irving and uh, Nick uh, Rolovich is that Kyrie Irving is an, is an athletic worker. He is labor. A coach is not labor, nor should we get confused with labor because they're being paid by a sort of a, a corporation. Sa same argument can be had about police. Police are not labor because they are the protector of capital. Their job is to protect the the owners, the the owners of the means of production, the the the, the structure in which capital is able to be accumulated. So when you say like. The, there's a there's a case study to be had here. We should always be looking at the overseer and not at the laborer. And I, you know, I think to kind of dive into this even more, uh, Rolovich is, and I missed this when it first came out, but um, the fact that one of his former players, Cassidy Woods, um, has is suing the school, suing Washington State because um, Rolovich kicked him off the team last year when he went to complain about really poor, about concerns about the COVID protocols and um, Woods has sickle cell anemia. And so he was really fearful of getting COVID when he and other players were, other athletes were coerced to come back under unsafe working conditions. And it came out through throughout this lawsuit, if we're sort of talking about overseers and how Rolovich, you know, sets the conditions for laborers under which they work and under which they are harmed, I mean, obviously coercing athletes to come back and, and sort of overseeing really unsafe uh, working conditions and an athlete coming forward and saying, I feel really uncomfortable about this. And Rolovich apparently told him, you know, I understand that you may want to opt out for, for, for health reasons, but then started questioning him about his involvement with the Black Student Union at WSU and also his involvement in We Are United. And that be, because um, Cassidy said, yes, I am involved in, the, in these movements, that was what, um, for Rolovich, that, those were the reasons why Rolovich kicked him off the team, right? So sort of think about who has the power to do what and who is sort of labor, laboring under really unsafe work conditions and if we're talking about you know labor movements in general this really adds to the reasons why college athletes um, don't 
you know, it's so hard for them to kind of do anything because these, these coaches have the power to essentially do what they want. And, and, and in terms of creating an unsafe working condition, you know, by refusing to get vaccinated, by um, overseeing athletes working under, you know, unsafe labor conditions, and then also not allowing players to, to um, work collectively, whether it's in terms of racial justice and or labor justice, right? All of those things are being thrown out of the window by Rolovich. And then Rolovich is now claiming, you know, victimhood and all these things that we see by people, you know, on the, on the white right, doing all these things over and over again. It's just, you know, the, the, the ridiculousness is just off the charts here. But, but again, the conversation has shifted to where we are sort of debating these really asinine, ridiculous things rather than kind of the conditions under which athletes are laboring. And, and that's the thing, Johanna, like you're, you pointed to the perfect example. If we're talking about the conditions, the coercive conditions in college sport, um, I, I, I'm so thrilled that you brought this up. Like I, I had forgotten about this context until you mentioned it. Um, Cassidy Woods was involved with We Are United. Mm-hmm. And what Rolovich told him, this is directly connected to what you were talking about, talking about coercion in college sport. He said, okay, this is Rolovich. Okay, so that's going to be that's going to be an issue if you align with them as far as future stuff. The them is We Are United. Because the COVID stuff is one right. thing, but um, joining this group is going to put you on a, on a uh, that's obviously, you know, you get to keep your scholarship this year, but it, it's going to be different. You know, if you say I'm opting out because of COVID and health and safety, I'm good. But this group is going to change, uh, I guess, how things go in the future for everybody, at least our, at our school. There's one way we'll handle it if it's COVID related. And then there's one way we're going to handle it if it's joining this group. And let's not, let's, Nathan and Johanna, let's not forget what athletes actually told us last year about these, um, about taking a season off due to COVID protocols, if there were any concerns. Athletes were very keenly aware that this would negatively impact their career and future within their, their sport. That, that in and of itself was coercion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, Cassidy Woods became involved with the United College Athlete Advocates, uh, the group founded by Kaya McCullough. Cassidy Woods is involved in that organization right now. So incredible uh, respect to him for the ways in which he has been pushing back. But this is a this is like a perfect example of everything we've been talking about in the context of college sport. This quote unquote, it's one thing to worry about health and safety, but if you are involved in organizing in any way, shape or form, if you start to make this about working conditions, if you try to seize power back from the coaches in any way, whoa, that's a completely different issue altogether. And, and it's, it's not just implicit. I mean, it's explicit in what the coach said, you're out of here. Yeah. If you're involved in organizing, that's, and that's, that's literally what the NLRB memo, by the way, is pushing back against. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping we will see something there, but I mean, the point of this is it's spectacle. I keep using that word, but that's another form of spectacle, the spectacle of coercion, right? You publicly humiliate Cassidy Woods. You throw him off the team precisely to send a message to your other players. That's yeah. why you do it. Yeah. And, and as if, right, that this, what, what, what he, you know, this decision to be like, oh, it's okay, you know, if you opt out, but if you're involved in the other thing, these other things, it's not okay. It's totally divorcing um, health from labor and racism, right? When we absolutely know these things are interconnected because of 
our colonialism, our system of enslavement, right? The, the bedrock, the foundation of our, of our nations and really our continent's history, right? Um, so, it, it, but, but that is, you know, what people, people are still refusing to understand how the, how health relates to racism and trauma and, and labor conditions when you cannot, you cannot disentangle them all, even though, even though Rolovich himself is connecting them in his own case, right? He's connecting them in his own case by being like, I'm refusing to vaccinate because of religious reasons. And then my rights are being denied. I'm a victim. I'm out and I'm going to sue your ass. Right. He's he, he's making all these connections himself, but he's not allowing um, his own athletes to do the same thing. Just a general comment about these about people like Rolovich. It seems like there's no winning with with folks who do not want the vaccine. Like there's no amount of compromise. There's no amount of like um accepting of any accountability for actions. It's literally only like you create the conditions where we can put other people at harm through not getting vaccinated or else X, Y, Z will sue. We will, will hire lawyers. We'll litigate this, that all these things. And I think like that's, that is an entitlement. Like that is all of these things are just highlighting how entitled and how, much these people feel that they're infallible um, and that their their perspective or and their way of seeing the world is the only way. And that trickles down into how they coach, for instance, and how they interact with their with the the campus athletic workers that they're um, overseeing. And I, like I don't think these ideas are disconnected. I don't think like the fact that, that Rolovich did that to, to Cassidy Woods is disconnected from the from the fact that he doesn't want a vaccine. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I want to go even further. Like what the Rolovich thing is dramatizing in a certain sense is this fundamental misconstrual that we have right now about um, freedom, quite frankly. We have this discourse and it's a very bad faith and very deliberate discourse from the right uh, about cancel culture and so-called woke culture, right? And the logic, if we're to grant it the uh, the credit of having a logic, but it, it, has, it has a project, certainly. Um, and that is, it is an intention to undermine any movement for, you know, justice, essentially, labor justice, social justice, etc., by making a claim that the quote-unquote regulation of speech, i.e. Mm -hmm. the foreclosure of what is reasonably sayable, um, that that is occurring to such an absurd extent that it is in some way compromising freedoms for people, right? And of course, like it's bullshit because mm -hmm. the whole idea, like the so-called, the, the principle behind cancel culture, um, if we're to take it like a face value is like, if you are doing things that cause harm to people via your speech and other things, you should be held accountable for that. You should not be allowed to indiscriminately harm people. If you're going to indiscriminately harm people, then people will push back against that and try to hold you accountable for the things you've chosen to say. Um, mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But the real issue yeah. here, the, okay, go ahead, Johanna. No, 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 keep going, please. The real issue here is a labor issue at the core because the real, like the cancel culture people are saying that we will lose our jobs if we say the wrong thing. So we're in this constant, it's the same pushing back against me too in the same way. Oh, we can't, we can't act. I, this man can't act around a woman in the workplace because at any moment, right. I might be accused of some kind of sexual impropriety, right. But the, it completely obfuscates the actual power structures in a capitalist society. And these power structures 
impose a completely different set of conditions. And what are those conditions? Workers are not able to ever speak back against their working conditions. If they ever speak back against their working conditions, they immediately lose their job. Whereas those in positions of authority in the workplace are empowered to say almost anything, right? Well, let's look at the case in the NFL of John Gruden. John Gruden literally was, it was disclosed that he had said some absolutely disgustingly racist things about uh, uh, the, the head of the NFLPA, uh, the union of the NFL players. He didn't lose his job for that. But then it became public that he had insulted his own boss, Commissioner Roger Goodell. He resigned within hours, right? I mean, it's funny. I, I see a coach as an overseer, right? And that's why... <laughs> He had plenty of power within that dynamic. He could, he could withstand a lot of critique in that moment. If he was a worker, maybe not. But for him too, right? There is still a level of subordination to someone else who has more power within the kind of logic of capital. And that is Roger Goodell in this case. You can't speak out. You can't be seen as speaking out against your boss in that way. Then Gruden's out the door. Um, so I just, I really think we have to be clear about what the real power dynamics are here and not get seduced by and sucked into these insidious discourses from what you called, Joanna, the white right. Because that's what all of this is about. That's what critical race theory is about. That's what cancel culture is about. It's all just a way of disguising the actual power dynamics. It's like the same logic that when we have this weird dog whistle of the working class, which is supposedly white, the working class in the United States is a mostly racialized population. Mm -hmm. So, like, to conflate the to conflate sort of this idea of woke, like liberal woke culture, most people with power in the United States are not racialized. Most people in the working class are. You know, so continuing to speak about football a little bit, because you know, and I apologize for this. You know, my head is in football all the time, so that's why I keep coming back to these football issues. Not to say that they're more important issues. Um, and actually, what I want, what I want to bring up here is not football only. It's really what I would call a collision sport issue. Um, but I would like to highlight, I think there was a really important um, recent intervention in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics entitled Toward Complete, Candid, and Unbiased International Consensus Statements on Concussion in Sport. Um, and I mean, I'm bringing this up now because I think that like this, this is, again, this is a fundamental labor issue because we're talking about a fundamental health and safety issue. Why is it that we have these occupational sites in which people can be literally knowingly sacrificed, sacrificing years of their well-being um, so that, you know, their employers can benefit, right? So this is why, like, this is just always something on the forefront for me if we're talking about labor issues in the context of sport. And, and I, I want to highlight that intervention because I think I appreciate that the authors are highlighting a problem with, the concu with consensus statements on concussion. And what the consensus statements are, are so-called putative experts, basically, um, who have come together via conference. And it happens, um, I think, every four years, uh, but it's been delayed because of COVID. So it was supposed to come out, I think, in 2020, and then it was pushed back to 2021, and now it's being pushed back to 2022. Um, and they come back and they release these statements that are supposed to sort of appraise the state of medicine essentially on concussions and therefore what should and should not be done in the context of sport re protocols and so forth right which in the in an abstract sense may very well seem like a you know a good thing <laughs> to do but the problem as highlighted by the the signatories of that recent intervention um, is that there are 
a lot. I mean, there's a lot of problems that they highlight, so I, I don't want to try to uh, minimize it. But I mean, there is a tremendous amount of conflict of interest, right, that yeah. goes into the, the the drafters of those consensus statements because these are people who have relationships with the NFL, the NHL, the NCAA, the military, quite frankly, uh, FIFA, the IOC. I mean, what do all these organizations have in common? A tremendous investment in uh, in the harm that occurs to people's heads in the context of the enterprises that they promote, right? I mean, in other yeah. words, as currently constituted, none of those enterprises could continue without people getting smashed in the head. And yeah. so there is a fundamental um, investment in those projects in minimizing and mitigating however much possible the definitiveness of a statement that collision sport causes necessary and fundamental harm to the brain. Right. And so what happens is we have basically, you know, it's been called like we have like merchants of doubt, essentially, where any means necessary is used to cast uncertainty on scientific findings to suggest that it's very difficult to make a causal relationship between the collision and the CTE that comes later, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, same thing with climate change, same thing with cigarettes, same thing with yeah. almost any public health issue. It's the exact same playbook. And so I appreciate that these authors are very critically uh, interrogating what is happening in these consensus statements, right? That, that is only to their, to their um, credit. My problem, however, with their intervention is frankly, like it doesn't go far enough. Yeah. I think at this point, this is not just a question of like, we need to massage these consensus statements to make them more accurate, more factual, more objective. These consensus statements are laundering the exceptionally, exceptionally corrupt, dirty, uh, harmful practices of these major leagues that are benefiting from harm in sport. And the bottom line at this point, we know enough to say collision sports cause fundamental harm. And if we care about health and safety and the well-being of athletes, we need to change these sports. They have to be changed right now. And if you're not willing to change these sports, you are profoundly complicit in the sacrifice of our future generations who are involved in these sports, including children. Uh, yeah. and, and to me, it's just, it's like, it's really, it's disgusting. Not, not, not the intervention, but like the, the consensus statements are disgusting. The way these in industries are willing to uh, countenance all this harm, it's disgusting. Yeah, I think you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head right there in terms of the critique here, I think, I think personally is on consensus statements and in, in general as being sort of watering down the language, laundering the language, if you will, um, and not being able to truly address or um, call for change. Because I, I think in part by virtue of being quote unquote consensus, um, if the the consensual nature of a statement is is always going to be sort of less um, hard hitting but in this particular case I think it is it's not shocking um, at all um, and it's extremely problematic that you can create a consensus that suggests that violent collisions cause brain trauma 
and not immediately follow that up with therefore all collision sport should take collision out of its foundational core that's not to suggest collisions should not be should not happen in sport collisions will happen i walk down the street and i might collide with somebody but when it's built into the foundation of the sport when the sport is founded on violence and collision and bodies colliding then we need to rethink that sport we need to rethink the rules of that sport the core foundation of that sport the mission of that sport and what's happening and this is obviously um going to target certain sports football hockey um rugby australian rules football uh soccer to some extent and and um association football but like these sports in many ways have violence, violent collision at the core. And we need to, as a scientific community, scream that from the rooftops, not water down um, a, a statement of sort of massage, like you put it, you put it, um, Nathan, massaging it for, for people, because that is complicity, I think. I mean, I don't have anything to add to this conversation because you all have really just described it so well. The only thing I would say is that it's it's not a surprise, right? I, I just I just don't find and like the more that I personally learn about sports, the more I'm unsurprised by developments that are emerging. I guess I'm surprised when people actually do the research to like bring all of this to light that like someone is actually paying attention to it. But if we look at, if we kind of zoom out and sort of look at international sport, whether it's the IOC, the IAAF, you know, uh, uh, International uh, Gymnastics Federation, anything. And then we also consider the fact that elite sport in the U.S., whether that's pro sport, college sport, kind of like elite kind of uh, club sport, these were all created under the same organizing principles um, of modern sport that created sport sort of elsewhere in the modern world that were then spread through colonialism and neocolonialism, you know, worldwide. It's just not at all a surprise because you see the same things in so many places. At this point, it's surprising to me that other people are not reaching these sort of same conclusions earlier. Um, so I guess that's just all I wanted to say. Didn't the statement actually say a cause and effect relationship has not been demonstrated between CTE and sports related concussions? You got it. That's, 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 that's exactly it. And, that, and that's the thing that's like, it's, it's almost unfathomable that you could make that claim when, you know, it says the notion that repeated concussion or subconcussive impacts cause CTE remains unknown, right? That's the literal language yeah. that's in the most recent one of these statements. But like at Boston University under Anne McKee, who has never participated in that consensus statement process, which is a massive red flag for you, um, she has shown that every 2.6 years of participation in American football doubles the chances of contracting CTE, right? I mean, like that's the bottom line. We know how harmful this sport is. If you were going to take that evidence and then put that beside a claim that the, the impacts are unknown, um, you're trying to sow doubt, right? You're trying, to, you're trying to buy time for more harm to happen and more profit to be generated. That, that's the bottom line. And we can, like, going back to what you were saying before, like, Derek, like, we can change some of these sports. Soccer has caused tremendous harm 
to people over the decades because of the use of heading in the game. But I mean, like I know pure, like for people, people don't like to change a thing that they love. I'm not trying to say yeah. that if there was no harm whatsoever, we shouldn't have heading in the sport. Okay. Like I get it. There's a really cool way in which that's become, that was like formatively part of the game. And like, it's a huge part of how the game is played now. I get it. Like that, that you may find aesthetic appeal in that or whatever else, but at the end of the day, like, could you take heading out of the sport and have a really beautiful sport left and even a sport that is good spectacle, right? A good spectator sport left? You absolutely could. Could you take hitting out of hockey and have a beautiful sport? That's not even a question. It's a better sport. It looks better to watch the sport without the hitting. I know why people are invested in it, right? Like, again, we've talked before about like ideological forms of coercion. If you are invested in a project for your whole life and it feels that like that's how you're supposed to do it, it's going to be exceedingly uncomfortable to change it, right? I mean, I get that. But at the end of the day, does hockey look beautiful when people are unencumbered and they're whipping around the ice and they're, they're flaunting and showcasing the skills that they have, as opposed to like the con, like, you know, the brutal forms of contact built into the sport. It's better. It's a better, it's a better visual. I think that there are real questions about sports like football, boxing, mixed martial arts. Like for me, there's no, I don't think we can, we can redeem the thing that people really like to watch as currently constituted. I think flag football is a delight to play. I'm not sure. I'm not trying to claim that people would like to watch it as much, but you know what? I don't care. The moral imperative is to protect people. It's not to protect an institution that we have come to like. And so we're like literally willing to engage in like hunger games or like squid game type processes in order to get that pleasure that we get from watching this stuff. That's not a justification. No, I I, I still, I'm I'm just grappling with this, like with how, with how like a scientific consensus can be that the, the relation between concussion and sub sub concussive blows, um, and CTE remains on like how you can write that down. Uh, Like I understand the scientific enterprise and the fact that you might not be able to show cause and effect. I understand that like the causal chain there might be a challenge to understand, but I wouldn't write that in text in terms of this remains unknown because you know what, like Anne McKee has shown from, from Boston university, like there is a lot of evidence to suggest there is, there is something happening there. So why wouldn't you write that? It remains unknown, but you can pretty much suspect that there is a very uh, close association, if not causal relation. Derek, are they writing in like a science and technology studies journal about like the social construction of science? Is that what's really happening here? Like what can and can't we know ultimately about science? Yes. This is not a philosophical <laughs> epistemological question here. What I, the like, fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, the bottom line here is we could see that like high performance sport, although it's, you know, it's mostly concealed because of our, our entertainment frame, really, for watching sport, right? It is, it is this thing, this spectacle. Um, but what, what it conceals is the fact that, like, everything that happens in the world of sport is, is you know, fundamentally framed by labor relations. And mm-hmm. those, you know, the, the head injury that occurs, the, like the occupational health and safety questions, those are labor questions, um, just like the vaccine mandates are labor questions. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's all a labor question, fundamentally. Um, and, and that's why... I think that 
in order to produce like the maximal forms of labor justice, right? Like just like, and we come back to this, but like just like in the academy, another space where mm-hmm. people struggle to see themselves as workers, I think in part because there's this way in which ontologically there is a resistance to identifying as a worker because we have these occupations that have, you know, coded themselves as something better, something more, right? Ultimately, the academic fancies themselves to be, you're a professor, you're not really a worker, you're something more special than that. And there's a way in which we've also coded the athlete as something, they're as a player, they're playing, not working, they're a celebrity, there's something that transcends work, right? And, and that's really problematic. That's, that undermines solidarity, it undermines our movements for labor justice, what we need to see athletes doing just like academics is, I think, really like buying in to their identity as workers. That is how they're going to produce better and safer conditions for themselves. And that is how they're going to be able to contribute more to the labor movement beyond themselves, right? And produce the kind of like general forms of solidarity um, that are like are literally, I mean, like not not to be hyperbolical here, but like that might literally save the human species at this point. Um, there's like nothing that is going to save us beyond people resisting the fact that capital will literally destroy the planet and the human, <laughs> the human race if we don't push back against it, right? And I mean, like, th- there's literally a role for sport to play in that because we have to leverage every single site of, I think, like, of labor and the power that yeah. labor can have. Anyway, with that said, um, folks, thanks for listening to us. Please, uh, please tell your friends about the show. Please follow us on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Uh, please rate and review on um, on uh, Apple Podcasts. I can, can never remember what it's called. <laughs> Apple Podcasts. <laughs> um, and if you're really feeling generous, um, please support our show on Patreon. But quite frankly. Um, You'd do just as well to support the strike funds at John Deere, Kellogg's. Um, You know, I see the Columbia grad workers are potentially going to be on strike by November 3rd. There are a lot of strike funds where people need your help because it is really scary to go on strike. It is really hard. Um, And any support you can provide for people, like those people are on the front lines of the most important struggles of our time. So please have their backs. (laughs) 